Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. The hellscape and heartache of war come very close these days. Atrocities and naked war crimes on YouTube and Twitter, and not just from Ukraine. Our guest this hour is a young Yemeni-American teacher of teachers at the Ed School of Michigan State University. Shireen Aladimi was born in Yemen, raised in India, then Canada. She got her education doctorate in the States and became an American citizen so as to vote against U.S. support of the Saudi war on her homeland. Yemen, she said to me a week ago, is the war we can stop. And then, strange to tell, came a ceasefire. In the Ukraine context, Yemen is the equally vicious autocrats' war, much longer and deadlier than the first month of Russia's war on Ukraine. I'm asking Shireen Aladimi to help us see Yemen and feel that war through the eyes of her parents and friends, tweets, videos, phone calls from family that is still there. What does it look like to you and feel like in the eye and the heart. It is absolutely soul-crushing to even imagine what people there are going through, what my own family and friends and neighbors, mm. people I grew up are going through. I avoid watching videos coming out of Yemen because it's so entirely devastating. Because I have personal connection to that place and to those people, it's very difficult to dissociate from the destruction. But it's actually also, watching a video is what got me into this work, what got me into activism because I watched a video of a man while bombs were being dropped and he was trying to comfort his children hmm. and his family and he's filming and he's saying, don't worry, don't worry, and he's kind of moving them to the basement. But every time he said, don't worry, his voice was kind of, his pitch was increasing and you could just hear the sheer terror in his own voice as he's comforting the family around him. And you just hear the bombs and you see the destruction. It was so incredibly devastating to me that I just couldn't stop crying and then finally had to pick myself up and figure out what can I do? Mm. What can I do to stop this devastation? Because this is just inhumane. Nobody should be going through this. Parents are making incredible sacrifices and at some point there's just nothing to give anymore and people die. And so when you hear about a child dying every 75 seconds of starvation, that is a brutal thing to imagine starvation, being starved to death, it's a very violent act, right? It doesn't just happen immediately, it takes a long time and it's extremely devastating to see a child starve to death and to see your own child starve to death knowing that you can't help them. There's nowhere to go. I'm sure it doesn't look like Ukraine, modern buildings, car culture, but the bodies, the death, must have that horror that we're getting more and more intensely out of the towns around Kiev. Bodies bound, shot, left on the street. In Yemen, it's um, people pulling bodies out of the rubble when a bomb hits their home. There's no really ambulance services. <laughs> There's no functioning government in many areas. And so people have to pull their own relatives, their own children out of the rubble. And those pictures get posted on Twitter all the time. And they're incredibly devastating. And no human being should ever go through that or should ever experience something like that. But there are modern buildings, there are cars. Those cars can't get fuel in them. And so if you can't 
mm. move your car. You also can't run a hospital. You can't run generators. You don't have electricity, and you don't have a functioning sewer system. You can't pump water. And so there's just a complete collapse in many areas because of this fuel blockade. Shireen, can I say with some chagrin, we have a hard time absorbing this, much less explaining the fact that it's U.S. bombs, planes, pilots that are doing this damage. But we've got to explain how we got there and also why this war has suddenly stopped. Well, I hope it stopped. There is a ceasefire currently. I'm optimistic, but I'm also very wary because there have been ceasefires in the past seven years that have not held. But how did it start? I mean, where do you go back? I think I would go back to 2011, Arab Spring. And Yemen, people have to understand, is the only republic in that Arabian Peninsula. So you have, in the, you know, Saudi Arabia is a monarchy, Oman is a monarchy, the UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, these are all monarchies. Saudi Arabia, of course. Exactly. Absolute monarchy. And Yemen is a republic. Yemen had a monarchy that it overthrew, and it was under British occupation in the south and also overthrew that. And so there's this long quest for democracy in Yemen. And we ended up with a dictator from 1978 till 2011. But in 2011, people saw what our Tunisian brothers and sisters were doing and the Egyptians, and they thought, well, maybe it's possible in Yemen too, to overthrow the government and to really have a democratic system. And so they went on the streets and they protested peacefully. And it was actually important that they protested peacefully because after the US, Yemenis are the most armed per capita. And so arms are widely available and accessible in Yemen and not just you know personal arms, but if you know someone who knows someone, you can get a tank kind of thing, you know? But they protested peacefully. Can I ask, are you being too generous to the Houthis who seem to enjoy this place in the war? and have not tried to stop it themselves. The Houthi Shia Muslims who overthrew their own government and seem to be the driving force on the Yemeni side of the war with the Saudis. I'm wondering, are there any clean hands in this war? No. There's a terrific imbalance of power and vicious killing. Is there a good faction on that scene? There are no clean hands. Civilians have been killed by everybody. And everybody needs to be held accountable for what they've done. The shock looking at the very big picture, is that you can't miss the sort of upside-down mirror of Ukraine. Autocratic brutality, killing for the sake of killing, which is to say terrorism, asymmetrical warfare, entirely heedless of civilian lives lost, 377,000, probably more than half children, said to have died in this war and in the blockade. And then the awful fact that it's American planes and bombs and intelligence that are coordinating all this damage on contract to Saudi Arabia. I mean, how could this have happened without our knowing it? That's a big question. So in March of 2015, the Houthis had taken over. President Hadi was under house arrest. He fled, he resigned, he took back his resignation. And then he went to Saudi Arabia and said, come help me, okay? get rid of these Houthis, they've taken over. Mm. Why? Because they want to return Hadi to power. What does Saudi Arabia have to do with Yemeni politics? Why should they care about democracy when they're an autocracy, they're a monarchy, right? And so Saudi Arabia has always played a role in Yemen. They've always had their hands in Yemeni affairs. They've always had a, a government that was 
basically not their puppet, but you know, very close contact, very close relationship to the Saudis. And they wanted to keep status quo. But they also had a new king and a new deputy crown prince at the time, Mohammed bin Salman, who was also defense minister. This is the infamous MBS. MBS yes. Who and he killed shows Khashoggi up. in a most excruciating, exactly. grotesque murder. Right. So he shows up on the scene. And I remember between January and March 2015, lots of articles saying, who is this deputy crown prince? Who is this defense minister? Where did he study? How old is he? Is he married? Nobody knew anything about him. And one of the first things he did was to launch this war in Yemen. And he didn't make the announcement himself from Saudi Arabian Arabic. He had his ambassador to the US make the announcement from Washington DC in English that they're launching Operation Decisive Storm. Now, what does this look like to the Yemenis if this announcement is being made in English from Washington DC? Well, America's leading the war in Yemen. And the same day, the Obama White House releases a statement saying, yes, there's operation uh, being launched in Yemen. We are supporting the Saudis. We are defending Saudi territory. Where did this come from? Nobody was attacking Saudi territory at the time. Will we ever know this? This is Obama time. Mm -hmm. And President Obama put more money and American support into that military mission than any of the presidents since. Can we explain that? What I was told by one of his former advisors, who's also currently advising Biden on national security, was that this was right after the Iran deal, and the Saudis were upset that the Americans and the Iranians negotiated a deal. The no-nukes, JCPOA. The JCPOA. And the U.S. felt that they should kind of appease the Saudis with agreeing to help with the Yemen war. There's reason that the U.S. is interested in kind of making sure that whoever is the leadership in Yemen is not so hostile to the U.S. and to Saudi Arabia, because then you have another Iran from the U.S. perspective. And so there's multiple reasons. And then it just became a cash cow, because the Saudis are buying U.S. weapons. They're you know, paying for intelligence services. They're paying for training. They're paying for spare parts and maintenance, whether those weapons were bought from the U.S. or not, the U.S. services them. And so it just became an incredibly lucrative deal with the Saudis and the Emiratis over the years. So there's multiple reasons that the U.S. is involved. And nobody's asking why. Hey, this is illegal, actually. You know, you can't just declare war on a country. And this amounts to declaration of war, as we've seen with the passing of the War Powers Resolution in 2019. This isn't just, you know, helping our allies over there. This is you launching a war, making sure that those planes are functioning, making sure that those pilots and soldiers are trained, making sure that the targets are chosen by U.S. commanders in the command room with the Saudi Arabians, making sure that after every flight, up until the Trump administration, up until 28, November 2018, the U.S. was providing mid-air refueling to Saudi and Emirati jets in Yemeni airspace. What is that other than war, other than a complete declaration of war on Yemen, right? I wonder if at some level Vladimir Putin's brutality in Ukraine is going to shame us out of our participation in the war on Yemen. I hope it does, but I don't understand how the same people who are currently dropping bombs in Yemen and starving Yemeni people by providing basically diplomatic cover for the Saudis in the blockade, then turn around and call Putin a war criminal and you know a butcher and whatnot. Those are the same words that people in Yemen are using against Biden, that they've used against Trump and President Obama. 
because they have been slaughtered by these three administrations. They literally see the serial numbers of the bombs that are being dropped on their homes, and they take pictures and they send it. They post it on Twitter's, and then arms experts, you know, tweet back and they say, "Oh yeah, this is a Raytheon serial number. This is a Lockheed Martin serial number." Right? We don't need fancy investigations. People know where these weapons are coming from. They see them in their homes. They know the U.S. is driving this war, and so I would hope that something like this would shame them, but. Do they really even have any shame to make these comparisons when they are so heavily implicated in Yemen and have been over the past seven years? Coming up, a comment from the Middle East scholar in residence at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Anel Sheline, and lots more of Shireen Aladimi. This is Open Source. Anel Sheline, welcome. The version we're getting from Shireen Aladimi of Yemen's ordeal is the first I've ever heard from a Yemeni heart and mind about a struggle I barely know. What are you hearing? You know, Chris, I, I think part of why we haven't heard more about what's happening in Yemen is because Americans are kind of tired of this story. They're tired of the endless wars in the Middle East. They're tired of being reminded that America's involvement here is often not on the side of justice or that it is very complicated. You know, thinking about the endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where initially there was this sense of righteousness that quickly gave way. Things like the images coming out of Abu Ghraib, for example, very early on starting to disabuse Americans of this notion that what we were doing was in any way right or good, and in fact, we were merely devastating civilian populations in these countries. I have to say, shame on us, shame on me for not knowing. <laughs> well, and so in particular, thinking about sort of a contrast with the war in Ukraine, where it's a much more compelling narrative for an American audience that has had to sort of grapple with the, the dark underside of American foreign policy for a long time, and then now to suddenly feel that we are, we are supporting the underdogs, the Ukrainians, whereas Yemen, as Dr. Al-Adimi mentioned, you know, when, when you hear about what's happening in Yemen, you respond. But at the same time, it is difficult. You know, I think Americans are just more accustomed to the notion that the Middle East is very prone to violence, that this part of the world, there's just really not that much that we can do to prevent violence when, in fact, there are things that Americans can do. And the most important thing would be to express to one's member of Congress and to one's senators that they need to support the Yemen War Powers Resolution that is, that is going to be reintroduced on the floor in the coming weeks. And now, Shireen's version puts a heavy load on Saudi Arabia. Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, his resume war didn't have to happen. Is that most of the picture? Well, it, it certainly is accurate that what the Saudis are doing is causing the vast majority of the devastation that we're observing in Yemen. That's not the whole story, but I think as an American, what the Saudis are doing is really one of the only areas where we could have an impact here, that the Saudis could not conduct this war without us. Neither could the Emiratis. 
then this question emerges of, well, then why is the United States continuing to support these horrific actions? And I think Americans are sort of used to the notion that we have to hold our noses when it comes to the Saudis because we're so dependent on oil. But that's not even really accurate anymore because the U.S. only imports about 7% of our oil from Saudi Arabia. So I think in terms of trying to explain this puzzle of why is the United States continuing to support such horrific actions in Yemen, a big part of it actually has to do with great power competition. And I think there's been a calculation made by the Biden administration And they think that it's in U.S. interest to continue to be the primary purveyor of arms to countries like Saudi Arabia and like the UAE. And they fear that if the U.S. doesn't provide these autocratic and clearly very aggressive states with the weapons, that they will turn to China or they will turn to Russia or they'll they'll get their weapons elsewhere and that U.S. leverage in the region would be impacted, that the the very influential weapons lobby that has a big impact on Congress, they would not be happy at all to see our, our sort of market share uh, as currently the world's largest supplier of weapons. They fear what would happen if, if that went down from the perspective of, you know, stockholders of Raytheon. So the question is, who's driving it, Saudi Arabia or our own arms industry? Pick one. I think our own arms industry is is very much to blame for why the U.S. is still involved, because if the U.S. were no longer involved, the Saudis would not be able to carry out this war. You know, two-thirds of Saudi planes are U.S.-made. They cannot fly without U.S. contractors providing the spare parts and the maintenance to keep them in the air. Anel Sheline, thank you for your comments so far. We'll ask you to help us wrap up at the end of the program. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Back now with Shireen Aladimi, the Yemeni-American scholar who's been outspoken against the U.S. planes, bombs, and personnel managing the Saudis' war on Yemen. Is it possible that it was the U.S., the Biden administration, that cued the Saudis, this war has got to stop, ceasefire immediately? He did say that during the campaign trail. President Biden was very clear. In the last few days, it's a result of negotiations that have been happening in Oman. Oman is a neutral party and have had multiple, you know, negotiation roles. And they got parties to sit together and to negotiate. It's possible that Biden also felt the pressure from here because we have certain Congress people threatening another war powers resolution and have been threatening this for a while now. The Constitution says the Congress shall declare war. Speak of the war powers authorization that would in effect require the Congress to vote on this support? Yeah, so War Powers Act of 1973 says that Congress gets to declare war and not the president. Every president since 1973 has just ignored it. And no Congress since 1973 has challenged a sitting president on an unconstitutional war, except in 2019 when they passed the War Powers Resolution against President Trump for Yemen. So this effort started in 2017, and it was blocked multiple times. And then finally, Ro Khanna saw it through in the House, and Bernie Sanders saw it through in the Senate, and others. And it was passed only to be vetoed by President Trump. The fact that it can be even be vetoed is an issue here, because they're trying to enforce the Constitution, and the president is saying, well, no, I'm going to veto this. I wonder, Shireen, if it's Putin's war in Ukraine that is heightening our finally, sensitivity to what we are doing. That's what needs to happen. 
If that's what's happening right now, I think this is a great step. But the average person needs to understand that we are Putin in Yemen. We have caused all of this death and destruction. We keep pointing the fingers at Saudi Arabia, the UAE, but the US is a warring party in Yemen. None of this would have been possible to this degree without US support. The Saudis and the Emiratis are completely incompetent and completely dependent on US support from A to Z. And war looks different these days, right? We're not gonna have US soldiers on the ground in Yemen. During Vietnam, I understand that people were really starting to see the injustice, especially when they saw U.S. body bags returning, right? And why should our soldiers be killed for what? It gets people questioning, why? Why this war? But we don't have U.S. veterans of the Yemen war because all of this is done through, you know, mercenaries are on the ground and you're just providing intelligence and training. And we have green berets along the border, but not really in the same way that wars used to be fought even in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. And so Yemen got overlooked because we're not at war in Yemen. We don't have any soldiers in Yemen. It doesn't mean that we're not at war in Yemen. Uh, for Congress to pass a war powers resolution means absolutely we're at war in Yemen. It just looks different these days. And so we have to be more critical over what the U.S. is doing because we are able to now launch wars without actually sending soldiers there. Yemen has had its own cutthroat political struggles on its own, what amounts to a civil war. I mean, I want to hear how different is the bombardment from an outside power. So I lived through two wars in Yemen. One I was too small to remember, and one I was 10 years old, so I remember very clearly. And in those civil wars, and they were very devastating, first of all, they're shorter, you know, much shorter. Things get resolved quickly. And they were devastating, and they were horrific, and they were traumatic. But you know, there was no blockade because in civil wars, you don't blockade yourselves because if the person you're bombing can't eat, you can't eat either. They don't have access to medicine, you don't have access to medicine either. So you don't just bombard hospitals like the Saudi-led coalition has been doing in Yemen. You don't target water resources like desalination plants, for example, in civil wars. You don't target food storage. You don't target agriculture because again, it's going to affect everybody, including yourself if you're doing the bombing, right? You know, you don't touch your heritage sites or dams that have been standing for 3,000, 4,000 years. You don't touch those in civil wars because you have a certain pride about your history, right? And the Yemeni monuments are so beautiful. And they're from, so beautiful. What, 2,000 years ago? Two, three, 4,000 years ago. It's an ancient civilization. Queen of Shiva, if people have that reference, you know, <laughs> ruled over Yemen. And so, you know, we are proud people with a long history and none of the civil wars that we've endured have ever caused this much destruction and this much chaos, and none of them have been so prolonged. None of them have caused starvation, importantly. People were always poor, but people weren't starving in Yemen. People are being starved right now because of the blockade. And that's the big difference. That's the thing that's killing most Yemenis. The blockade we read about is mainly of food, critically of food, also fuel. Is that the main front of the war? I would say that's the main front of the war. The bombs cause a lot more attention. So anytime there's bombing, especially in the capital, you see it on Twitter, people are retweeting. I mean, not as much, of course, as other things, but it certainly grabs people's attention because it's so devastating and loud and, you know, disruptive. Food is the same thing. So before the war, Yemenis used to import 90% of their food. So trade is hugely important. Most of it actually came from Saudi Arabia. After the war, you know, they couldn't trade anymore. And so they became dependent on aid. So 80% of the population now is dependent on aid. Even people who were simple fishermen, there are stories that made headlines a few years ago 
where just fishermen on the shores of Hodeida would be targeted by airstrikes. And so people can't even fish in their own waters anymore. And so there's this use of almost like a siege warfare, like medieval siege warfare, where you try to trap people in this place. Shireen, isn't it bizarre that you get news of bombs in Yemen from tweets by eyewitnesses, but it never makes our papers, and there's been very little journalism around this war. It seems possible that the Yemenis reporting to the diaspora around the world is much more knowledgeable about not only the war, but our operations, oh, yeah. the way our constitution and our laws work and our military operates, than we know. I mean, this is a sad thing here. They've been following the war powers. and Back in Yemen. Back in Yemen. And every legislation that was introduced to either end weapon sales or you know, war powers, every bit of legislation that was introduced, Yemenis back home are following it. I've personally been told many, many times, we understand that the you know, American population is not at fault, but this is their government is doing this. But there are these mechanisms. They say in Yemen, we don't have mechanisms to change the laws. We were under dictatorship for so long. But in the US, there are these mechanisms. And so they get really excited every time they see us promoting you know, a certain legislation. Call your congressperson, HR 31, HR 51, whatever. And they follow it very, very closely. I remember one time, a Yemeni friend wrote, and I say friend, but these are all people I met on Twitter. I don't know them personally. Um, you know, wrote an open letter, really trying to get the American public to adopt, to really push for this legislation, the war powers, and made a, a very moving case for, for why they should and how they should cherish the system that they have here in the United States. And that's what makes me really sad. It just breaks my heart because it, and then they see it go through and then nothing happens. You know, in the case of the war powers was vetoed or the case of weapon sales, we don't have enough votes, for example. And yet they continue to be hopeful. Oh, maybe this next one, maybe it'll be fine. And then sometimes I, I interviewed a few Yemenis when Biden took over and I said, what do you think? And I asked three people. One person said, she was very optimistic. She said, I believe Biden, I believe in democracy, I believe that he's gonna end this war. One person said he was kind of indifferent. He said, remember this war started under the Obama-Biden administration, so I don't really have much hope. But you know, if, if something good comes out of it, fine. And then the third person I interviewed, his daughter was nine months old, uh, 11 months old, when uh, a bomb fell in their home during the Obama administration and, and killed her. Mm. And he said, Biden, that's the same guy who killed my daughter. I don't believe him. And so they follow what's happening here very, very closely, and they understand the mechanisms that we have. But you know, a lot of Americans still don't know where Yemen is. And yet the U.S. has been hugely consequential to Yemenis, 30 million Yemenis. You're an American by now. How do you explain this wonderful country that's bombing your homeland? I mean, the U.S. is a contradictory country to begin with, right? It's a settler colonial country. We have slavery at our foundation. And so I understand the complexities of this country, but I also understand that when there's a will, there's a way. There are these ways that we can do good, right? Be a force for good if enough people wanted it to be. Uh, but it's been very frustrating. And um, I only became a, I have to be honest, I finally decided to apply for citizenship. I was a resident for a very long time. But when I saw that Bernie Sanders was running, I thought, here's our hope to end this war. 
and I wanted to vote for him in the Michigan primaries. <laughs> and so I got my citizenship just in time to do that <laughs> because he did give us a lot of hope to see that War Powers Resolution go through all the way through the Senate. Will it get passed, the War Powers Authorization? I worry right now that it might not get passed because that momentum that we had built when it was seen as Trump's war has kind of been deflated. A lot of Democrats, I think, are hesitant to go up against Biden. Many of them that I've spoken to said they believe Biden and mm. they believe that he's trying his best to end this. We shouldn't be forcing him through legislation. I don't know why he should get any special treatment. It's still illegal what he's doing. People are still dying. And when you starve people for long enough, you know, more of them die. So it's worse now than it was under Trump, right? That's just numbers. It shouldn't matter who the president is. It should matter that what's happening in Yemen is illegal, it's immoral, it's wrong, and we should end it. But I worry that it might pass the House, but I worry about it going through the Senate. Shireen, how do you frame in your own head the pictures we're getting of Putin in the Kremlin and the devastation of Ukraine? I mean, For a while, I wondered why Yemen was, wasn't getting any attention in the news, and I thought maybe people just don't want to see death and destruction. You know, maybe it just... It's just too sad to watch people be in such misery, you know, and so maybe news organizations are not willing to take that story up because it's just bad news. There's nothing uplifting about what's happening in Yemen. But then Ukraine happened, and it's all we ever hear about in the news. And there is interest, and there's so much empathy. There's so much empathy, and I remember thinking, you know, Ukrainian Americans, Ukrainians, they should feel so proud and that the world really is standing with them, yes, you know, true. and it just must feel as devastating as it is to be in, in that position. It just must feel like, you know, the world's got your back. The sense that injustice is so clear. Nobody's asking about the complexity of Ukrainian history in order for them to empathize with Ukrainians. I've heard people telling me, well, you know, it's really complex in Yemen. We really should understand all of the details before we understand if this is right or wrong. It shouldn't work that way. Killing children is wrong. Bombing civilians is wrong. Starving people is wrong. It's wrong in Ukraine. It's wrong in Yemen. It's wrong wherever it's happening, no matter who's doing it, right? So I see what's happening in, in Ukraine, and in a way, it gives me hope that people do care when they do know about what's happening and when they do know and learn about injustices, that they care and they want them to stop. I just wonder why we haven't had the same kind of interest when it comes to Yemen, and I know why the U.S. is involved. The U.S. is doing the destruction alongside the Saudis. There's nothing justifiable about what's happening. But even when Yemen did get attention in the news every now and then, people still think of it as a civil war. People still think of it, you know, incorrectly as a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's not. People still think of it as, um, well, people are starving. Well, I don't know why they're starving. Maybe there's a drought. Maybe there's, you know, there's not that context. You know, there's not that, well, here's what the U.S. is doing in Yemen. That story has not been told enough or clearly or as often in order for Americans to really say, well, no, 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 this shouldn't be on our hands. In my interactions with Americans over the past seven years, and I give talks everywhere, wherever people will invite me, when people find out about what's happening, they really are just torn up about it and they want to do something to end it. You know, they want to end U.S. involvement in Yemen. So I know that there's hope. And when I see what's happening in Ukraine, I know that there's hope in the world. Coming up, the difference between civil war and foreign intervention. This is open source.
We're talking about Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula. In ancient times, Yemen was the first home of coffee at the port town that's still called Mocha. The beautiful Queen of Sheba in the Hebrew Bible came from Yemen with her famous spices. Today, Yemen is a war zone. Shireen Aladimi, a first look at these wars compels you to say stop immediately in Yemen and Ukraine. In Yemen, what is it going to take to turn a Ramadan ceasefire to an end of that war? What has to be done? What introspection and understanding? What action is required of the U.S. in our arms trade around the world? We have to let sovereign people act independently, understand and respect the sovereignty of nations. We just have to do that, and we have not done that in the United States. We've intervened in all of these conflicts and made them worse. I sat in a meeting with Tim Lender King last summer, who is the Biden envoy to Yemen. And at some point he kind of said, well, what do you want us to do? Just leave Yemen and just leave it up to Yemenis? And I said, that's exactly what you have to do. You leave Yemen up to Yemenis. It's none of your business. Don't turn this into another Afghanistan where you're there for 20 years. You've caused this devastation. And then Afghans are going to sort it out themselves, you know, and take back their country and figure out what's best for them. And that's what we have to understand, that people on the ground have an incentive to make things work. The Houthis, Hadi's government, the Islah party, the separatists even in South Yemen, they all have an incentive to work things out because they have to live with one another. No one's going anywhere. You can't just say, get rid of the Houthis. You can't say, get rid of Hadi. That's not possible. You can't say, get rid of the separatists and just ignore them. So they know that they're going to have to live together. And Yemen has a, it's a tribal society, has a long history of tribal connections and tribes negotiate and they come up with a deal that works best for them and they move on. And that's what's going to happen in Yemen in the end if these foreign interventionists leave, if the United States stops supporting the Saudi-led coalition, if the Saudis lift the blockade and their invasion, occupation of Yemeni islands by the UAE, for example, any kind of military presence in Yemen, any foreign intervention ends, and Yemenis are going to be left with one another, and they're more than capable of making their own decisions. And Yemen, at the end of the day, is a democracy. The U.S. says they care about democracy. Clearly, in the case of Yemen, they don't, because they're supporting all these autocrats. But Yemenis are going to vote for whoever they want, and that's what I hope will happen. It can only happen without foreign intervention. Bruce Rydell, long high history in the CIA, now a writer, says that Yemen won this war a few months ago, when it established the fact that it could interfere with Saudi oil operations, and that that's decisively what happened. Yeah, so he makes a case that the Houthis, by being able to kind of strike back, you know, and strike back where it hurts, which is oil production, Aramco, in Saudi Arabia, or even sending some drones to the UAE and kind of disrupting the UAE's everyday life, have won the war, he says. I think that's an interesting statement. Certainly the Saudis and the Emiratis like to call this a war, but don't want to be hit back. Because the second the Saudis and the Emiratis, especially the Emiratis, when they saw that the Houthis were sending these drones to Abu Dhabi, they started pushing the Biden administration to list the Houthis as terrorists. I think what's most important, the fact that they've been able to hold on, the Houthis have been able to hold on for seven years without 
I mean, you can't even compare what they have compared to what the Saudis and Emiratis have. I think that's been interesting. Nobody expected them to last this long. Nobody expected them to fight back the way they did, which is why you see things like the blockade being enforced, you know, as a way to try to squeeze them into surrendering, or even the Trump administration cutting off U.S. aid to northern Yemen. So even aid has been used as kind of like a weapon of war. But all of these tactics, including, you know, potentially listing them on the list of foreign terrorists, all of these are tactics to get the Houthis to surrender. But people, I think, imagine Houthis and they imagine a very small group of people. I don't think they imagine the kinds of numbers that they have on Yemen on the ground. And that's what's been allowing them to be so successful over the last seven years. And so you can't just get rid of them. They can't surrender. They can't go back to their province, which has been entirely devastated. They're an integral part of Yemeni society. We're going to have to reckon with them whether we like it or not. They do have a lot of support among Yemenis on the ground. And so in many ways, I think they have won just by holding on. Do we like them for holding on in an endlessly destructive war? I think what's happened, you know, the U.S. didn't want the Houthis getting close to Iran. Well, by bombing them and starving them, and they've basically made them go closer to Iran over the last few years. So that was kind of productive. The Haidi government and the Saudis and the U.S. wanted the Houthis to just be like some insignificant group just in one part of northern Yemen. But a lot of people signed up to be part of this movement to defend their country against what they see as foreigners and, you know, interventionists. And, and so it's only grown. And so I think whatever they had hoped has backfired. But like I said, Yemenis are going to have to pay the consequences we mentioned earlier, there are no clean hands in this war. You know, human rights violations have been committed by everybody. Within families, there are people who love them, people who hate them. So this is not like, oh, my tribe thinks this, or my region in Yemen thinks that. Lots of people see them as heroes for defending Yemen. Lots of people see them as enemies for starting this war by taking over the capital, Sana'a. They're not popular Democrats, for sure. No, certainly they weren't elected or anything like that. They are complex, I would say. They have an interesting history. There was a lot of sympathy for them when we first heard about them in Yemen. So there is this group from northern Yemen, their province borders Saudi Arabia, very underdeveloped. Not even, you know, they didn't have electricity or running water in many of those areas. And they had a member in parliament, and he was outspoken against the president's corruption. Now. There is no doubt that our dictator was corrupt. I mean, the man was among the richest in the world. The UN at some point put his wealth at $60 billion. And Yemen was the poorest country in the Middle East. You know, we have as many natural resources as our neighbor Oman does. And yet Yemen is this impoverished country and he's enriching himself and enriching the people around him. The other reason the Houthis came to prominence is because they're a family of scholars, religious scholars in Northern uh, Uh Yemen. And so the Houthis, it turned out, were very good at fighting back. And so they were under-resourced, but they were able to kind of hold their own and gained more sympathy from the average Yemeni person at the time because they were like, oh, they're standing up to this dictator. And so that's how it started. Mm. And up until 2011, you know, when they joined the People's Revolution, they weren't seen as the bad guys. They were seen as people who were oppressed and were speaking out against this oppression, much like the rest of Yemen was trying to do in 2011. They became the bad guys in many people's eyes 
when they took over the capital in 2014. They just marched over and just took over the institutions and placed the president under house arrest and tried to force their way into having a solution to whatever the problem was in Yemen at the time, which was the stalling of any kind of reform that was supposed to happen after Hadi received power. Shireen, you are a Yemeni, but not of the Houthi persuasion. <laughs> what is your deepest loyalty here? People, you know, mm. just the average person. I don't care what political faction they follow. I think if you are a person, if you're a civilian, you should not expect to have your life turned upside down. You shouldn't expect to have your children get killed as they're sleeping. You shouldn't expect to potentially starve to death. And that's what I want to stop. I'm not living in Yemen. If elections happen in Yemen, I'm probably not going to vote in those elections, even though I am a citizen of that country by birth. You're teaching teachers, I should say, in the ed school at Michigan State University. Right. I'm not a political scientist. This is not my day job. But I care about what this country, where I live and I pay taxes, is doing to another country that happens to be where I'm from originally. Mm. And there's nothing that justifies what the U.S. is doing in Yemen. Nothing. We can talk about how evil the Houthis are till the cows come home. It doesn't justify blockading Yemenis. It doesn't justify dropping weapons, bombs on them. It doesn't justify starving a child every 75 seconds. Nothing justifies that. And so lots of Yemenis have said to the Saudis, well, who are you? It doesn't matter if we like the Houthis or not. Who are you to interfere in our problems? This is a sovereign country. And we'll sort our own issues after you leave. <laughs> you know? So I feel like that's what's going to happen. So we might end up with civil war, an actual civil war, after this is all over. I refuse to call it a civil war now because there's so much foreign intervention. When you have President Hadi living in exile in Riyadh, he makes official visits to Yemen once a year, maybe, because his life is under threat, even in areas that he supposedly controls in Yemen. This is how unpopular this man is, that they want to shove down Yemeni's throats. And so you have all of these different factions and all of these foreign interventions, and people still want to call it a civil war. It's not a civil war right now, but we may end up with civil war. But like I said, a civil war cannot be as devastating as what we're seeing in Yemen right now. I have to ask, Kareen, as a young person of talent and a lot of experience, where do you see a friendly future, a place you'd love to live and work? You've lived in India, you've lived in Canada, you've lived in Yemen, and now for what, a dozen years in Michigan? What looks good out there? And what are the most worrisome trends you see in all this turmoil of 2022? I mean, I've lived in the U.S. longer than I've lived anywhere else. I still think of Yemen as home. <laughs> but, you know, we've divided ourselves as people and we've created these artificial borders and we said, this is mine and this is yours. And we fight these wars over things that we've just carved out of sand and water and it's deeply upsetting to me that we have all of these real crises that our human race is facing, like climate change, for example, and yet we choose to kill each other over amazing, squabbles. Yeah. It's just amazing. And it's deeply upsetting. And I wish more people understood how ridiculous it is for us to be fighting one another when we have just so much more that we can cooperate on, you know, and not think of this world as mine versus yours. And I know it's naive to think that we'll ever get there, but I remain optimistic. I think one step at a time. Let's end this war in Yemen. Let's end other interventionist wars, because we've been doing this as a country for decades. Rinse and repeat, intervene, topple a government. Oh, created another problem over there. Mm, too bad. 
that country goes into devastation for the next 20 years, we never feel the consequences. They do. Creates a migration crisis. Why are they here? Why are they at our borders? It's just this endless cycle of violence and intervention and thinking that we know what's best for other people and not allowing people to decide their own future. And I hope that would end. It could end if we pass a war powers resolution for Yemen. And it could end if we actually legislate that no president should be intervening in other people's wars, whether overtly or covertly, because it just doesn't get us anywhere. It just ends up creating more chaos. Shireen Aladimi, you're a good citizen and a good teacher. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I asked Anel Sheline at the Quincy Institute for a last word. Anel, explain how Joe Biden was all against this war in Yemen as a candidate and then turned early in January as president. Well, I think on the campaign trail, Biden was eager to distinguish himself from Trump, who was so clearly in bed with the Saudis and, and you know, had <laughs> expressed no compunctions about the, the effects of what they were doing to Yemeni civilians. But unfortunately, I, I you know, I, I think part of this could be due to the fact that Biden inherited such a, a conglomeration of crises that, that I don't know to what extent the Yemen file is something that the president himself is really dealing with. I think this has largely been outsourced to other people on the National Security Council, people like Brett McGurk, who remains very skeptical of Iran and who is very much of the opinion that mm. the U.S. needs to continue to compete with China in the arms industry, that he is not willing to lose the Saudis and Emiratis as some of our best customers of U.S.-made weapons. But interestingly, I mean, and as we've seen with the war in Ukraine, I think some of these rulers are already making that calculation, that they're already starting to side with China and Russia, or at best, they're, they're hedging. You know, the world is no longer unipolar. The U.S. is no longer the sole superpower. And so increasingly, I think the calculations that are made to try to maintain American supremacy, especially military supremacy, are increasingly going to break down. And it's going to be increasingly evident that these do not, in fact, serve American interests. They only serve the interests of the shareholders and the CEOs of these big weapons producers. So why not shut down the war? Right, exactly. And, and this is part of why, you know, I, I think for your listeners who, who may find all this very depressing, but I, I think a key takeaway here is that we, we as Americans can make a really big difference by calling our representatives in Congress and telling them to support a war powers resolution, because that would, that would not only end U.S. support for what the Saudis are doing, but would also help Congress to reassert itself in, in other conflicts going forward, that the executive branch would understand that Congress does intend to assert its constitutional authority over the declaration and, and, and the, the maintenance of war fighting. And now, Sheline, what risk do you see of a civil war in Yemen if the Saudi pummeling were to stop and the Yemenis were on their own? I do think that the violence would likely continue, but the difference would be that as long as there's foreign resources pouring in, the fighting is likely to go on indefinitely because it just the, there continue to be more resources. Whereas eventually, if it, the sovereignty over the conflict were returned to Yemenis, that would be dealing with 
a finite pool of resources, a finite pool of people. Mm. Uh, furthermore, we wouldn't see Yemenis engaging in the same level of devastation because they themselves could be impacted if they're firing on electricity facilities or water treatment facilities that could also be their own electricity and water that they're undermining, whereas the Saudis have, have no such concerns. Shireen thinks civil wars don't last anything like as long. They get tired. They get spent. Do you agree? It depends on whether there's international support coming in. I mean, this is from the, the civil war literature, that you know, civil wars tend to last a lot longer when foreign powers are, are, have turned it into some kind of proxy war. Shireen's description of the Houthis, disproportionately powerful among Yemenis, reminded me a little bit of the Taliban in Afghanistan, the Taliban which just defeated us, in effect. Is that a way to think about the Houthis? Yes. No, I, I absolutely see a lot of parallels there because both the Taliban and the Houthis are uh, religious ideologues. They oppress women. They've engaged in, in horrible human rights abuses. But they have the legitimacy of fighting against a foreign occupying power. Yes. And there are people both in Afghanistan and in Yemen who don't like the thought of being ruled over by the Taliban or by the Houthis. But they'd rather survive under, under that sort of rule than die as a result of either the U.S. occupation or the ongoing U.S.-assisted uh, Saudi bombardment. Anel Sheline, thank you so much. Anel Sheline of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thank you for having me. No end of thanks to Shireen Aladimi, professor in the College of Education at Michigan State University. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Anel Sheline is a fellow at the Quincy Institute. Read her work in the Quincy's online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. Thanks also to Jane Huber at Radcliffe. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time, join us every time, for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of smart, independent-minded podcasts. Here's one to check out, Subtitle, the podcast about languages and the people who speak them. Have you ever wondered when and why comedians began talking about punching up and punching down? Subtitle knows. Find that at subtitlepod.com and check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.